This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the 24th Annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty at the university. And tonight we have this great privilege of having Nettie Okorafor with us. No, it is. You, you, t- you, get, you had that look. That really privilege? No, it is a privilege to have you. She's won practically every award there is for science fiction, for fantasy. An amazing writer. It's awesome to have you here. Her work ranges from comic books to young adult fiction to novels that are being made into HBO series uh, and movies. And uh, Nettie Okorafor, welcome to our Writers' Symposium. Thank you very much. All right, so, so much about Africa that has been written, um, the literature about it seems to be so rooted in the past. I remember reading African folk tales to my kids when they were growing up, but it was always stuff in the past, always stuff in the past. You write about Africa, uh, Nigeria in particular, and some other areas, but Nigeria in particular, where you're connecting that past to the future. What's, what's going on there, and why the future? Why can't you just be like everybody else? <laughs> I was going to say, why not? <laughs> well, you know? well, well, all right. <laughs> but I mean, it's, um, it's, it's sort of a, it's, it's a long story. You know, it's, it's something that, um, it's not something that I could say that, that I can answer with one quick answer. Mm-hmm. It's, it's many different threads that eventually, that eventually came together. I mean, well, first of all, the, the why not, you know, uh, these are, I, th- I think that every, every part of the world should, people should be imagining what the future there would be like. That's, that's necessary. Um, but for me, it's, um, it really started with the trips that I took back to Nigeria with my, uh, with my family when I was younger. You know, um, those were pivotal for me. Those were, those were, there was so much. For, well, first there's the American experience that I was having where, you know, we were the first black family to move in, one of the first black families to move into the neighborhood um, that we were in, in South Holland, Illinois, which is a south suburb of Chicago. And it was, it was extremely racist. And, um, and, and so we were dealing with that. My, my, when I say we, um, I'm really talking about me and my two older sisters, my younger brother, he came, he was seven years younger. And so he didn't deal with a lot of this, but the three of us, we were all one year apart. So we were, we moved as a unit. And so we dealt with all of the, the racism in that neighborhood as a unit and the racism there in South Holland, Illinois in the eighties was very strong, Mm -hmm. very, very strong. So while we were dealing with that and, and, and we had immigrant parents, our parents had come from Nigeria in um, 1969. They came for school and they ended up staying. And um, so they had a different world. They had a different view of the United States. They viewed the United States as a place where there was racism and all of these problems, but it was also a place of opportunity. So we were in this neighborhood that when we were dealing with this, these uh, racial issues, it wasn't something that they thought would hold us back. They kind of just left us to deal with it. And so we did. So while we were having that experience, they started taking us back to Nigeria um, during the holidays. And those 
those trips, especially early on, were pivotal to my, my sense of self, my identity, my worldview, all of that. Because going from dealing with a very um, racist um, environment, then going to another part of the world that was all black and where there was no racism, where there, there was something called tribalism, actually. And, you know, you have family there and you're part of there, but you're also part of this other. It was, it was just, it was a lot, right? So, so those trips were pivotal for me, just in terms of my foundation as a person. And so as I grew older, I started understanding and and noticing the politics, the political situations, and, and the, the, the complexity of those dynamics. And, um, and then as I grew older, as I grew even older, I, I realized that there was also technology. And it was that technology that started making me think about what would the future be like here. Because the, the technology started showing up in this, these really organic ways um, in the most, at least to, to my eye, the most peculiar places, the most unexpected places, places where, you, where, where there previously was barely any technology, like the villages of um, st- the south, southeastern um, Nigeria, where there would be homes but the, you know there was no running water or electricity and we're talking in very rural parts like my mm-hmm. my father and my mother's ancestral land and cell phones started showing up in these places before there was running water right yeah yeah cell phones before there was running water so it's like it just leapfrogged over those structural things and then you had these cell phones that were bringing all this information also um things like cable you know like there would be one house that would get cable and in that one house the one network no the two networks they got were mtv and bet nice (laughs) nice you can imagine that uh, <laughs> they couldn't get TMZ too. That, they didn't that was, get anything yeah. except those two channels. So so yeah. But these these um, seeing technology pop up in these places, and it, it was it was organic. The way it it the way that cell phones kind of just became a part of this part of the world was really fascinating to me. It it just and it was like. Um, that's where I started thinking about, okay, what is this place going to be like in yeah. the future? Like, what, what are the possibilities? And the possibilities that I started thinking about were really interesting. And that's what made me start writing it. So seeing some of that technology in the middle of that, what, what seemed sort of uh, odd, mm-hmm. given the lack of technology in other ways, bounced you forward in your imagination. Yes, yes, very much so. All right. Well... I've, I've read a lot of your stuff here. So, cool. And here are some recurring themes that I think. You tell me if I've, uh, okay. if I've got most of them. Um, you've got racial and gender equality mm-hmm. running through most of your work. Political violence. That's in a lot of it. Mm-hmm. The destruction of the environment. Uh, genocide. Corruption. So... That's one piece of yeah. these themes. But then you've also got these really, really strong themes of friendship and ancient wisdom, risk-taking, all with really, really, really strong female characters. So are you just kind of absorbing what you're seeing around you as you're writing from these themes? Or are you also imagining things getting worse, things getting better? What's going on? Um I think a large part of it is absorbing. It's because it's a lot of these issues 
uh, it's not that I sit down and think, okay, I want to write about, I want to write one book that has genocide, female genital mutilation, <laughs> child soldiers, um, deals with patriarchy. I, I, I didn't sit down to, to uh, write all that in one book. But when I, when I started writing, it all came forth. It all came forth. And, and a lot of it has to do with, one, as a writer, I listen you know, those, I'm very sensitive to, um, to the stories of people around me, and I'm always, always listening and taking it in. And so when you sit down to write, you, you dig from within, and you dig from those places of energy, those places of energy that, that, um, that really shine or burn brightly. And so those are, that's, where all of that, that's where all of that comes from. So it's not that, I'm, that I have an agenda. I don't. Um, not a conscious agenda, but I mean, there's certain, certainly things that I'd like to see, uh, see change, but there's, when, when I'm writing, it's, it's not something that I, that I think of specifically. It just comes forth. Sure. Well, one of the things that I think also comes forth is, and this is what I think is the biggest issue that comes in every single thing of yours that I've read, whether it's a short story or a comic or a novel, is the fundamental issue of identity. Hmm, yeah. And, and here's, here's what I'm talking about. Um, almost all of your main characters are different from everybody else in some way. Might be skin color, it might be something about their hair, it might be special gifts, but there's always some kind of a dimension of outcast and different hmm. and not fitting in. Hmm. Would you agree that that's running through there also? Yeah, it, it's... Um Yes and yes and no. The the yes part is yeah. The 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 issue of identity is something that is always uh, central to me, um, especially being Nigerian American and and not just Nigerian American but like aware, aware and interested. You know, I've always like I could have easily just been like I I don't have any interest in going back to Nigeria. I don't have any interest in in that that part of that part of my culture. But I've always been always been interested, like deeply interested and aware of the dialogue mm -hmm. around being Nigerian and being American and how those come into conflict and how those work together sometimes. I've always been aware of that. And I've always um, grappled with it. Like, yeah, because based on what you just described, you didn't fit in. Yeah, yeah. Right? You didn't but fit it's in like in, You, you in fit Chicago. in, but you don't fit in. Like, like for example, being uh, being black in the United States. You know, I fit in to the African-American community, but at the same time, I don't have the same history. So I'm like inside, but I've, I've dealt with the racism. Like I've dealt with the worst of it or some, uh, not the worst of it, but you know what I mean? Um, no, actually, yeah. I don't. I'm a white guy. <laughs> no. So no. But you still know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've read about it. But yeah, so I've dealt with that side of it. But so so I'm kind of an outside inside. There's that outside inside thing of belonging, but not belonging. The same thing goes with being Nigerian. You know, where I am outside and inside. So there, so there's that those issues of identity, and it's not just in terms of being Nigerian American. It's also you know I was an athlete, but I also when I wasn't on the tennis court or on the track I was in the library so there's that's the, the conflict between being a, a, an athlete and a nerd a jock and a nerd those are the stereotypes and like I was you, both you of those both, <laughs> yeah exactly right? where you're not supposed to be both or but I was definitely both like strongly both um I was female athlete of the year in Illinois 
You know, at the same time, I was all about books. I was, I, I consumed books like candy, you know? So those, those are, that's another, that's just one other um, example. I, there are several examples where I just don't fit into certain specific solid categories. So there's that. But to your point of um, all of my characters being special, there's, I mean, that ca- that's true, but at the same time, um, if I'm writing about a character as the main character, that character will look special. Like, I could write about any kind of character or any anyone, and that me writing about that, that person or that creature or whatever mm-hmm. um, will make that character special because that's the nature of narrative. So, like, for example, when I wrote Binti, it's like, um, in my head, the re- Binti means girl in Arabic, so in my head, I was writing about an average girl who goes on an extraordinary adventure. But like when you read it, you see that she's a mathematical genius. She does all these, ama- she goes on to do all these amazing things. But this is her story. So like, so there's the, the idea of her just being an average girl. Like th- the question is, what is an average girl? What, what is, right. you know, um, and then her being extraordinary. So I'm on, I'm, I'm on both sides with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's look at a different example, uh, that illustrates this mm-hmm. a little more. So the, the sunny character through the Akata books. Mm-hmm. Okay. So she have, she has this quest. It seems like that's running through both those books that says, I realize I'm different. So who am I? That seems to be just driving her through much well, of what's going on there. But the, the I realize I'm different. I think it's everyone else real, uh, treats her like she's different and she has to deal with that. All right. Yeah. All right. She sees herself as herself. You think? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess you'd know. You're the one who she, wrote it. Yeah, yeah. All right, all right. It, it just seemed like what was driving her was to... F- was to find out who she, who she fundamentally is apart from what all these other people were saying who she was. You're, yeah, okay I can go with that. I can go with that. I can go, I mean, like, when, when things start getting weird, that's when, it's, that's when things, it's like her, her journey, it's almost, it, it's very much the hero's journey where you deny, exactly. you, you deny the quest at first and then something pushes you to, to go on the quest. So, so for her, it was like she was going about, you know, she was just who she was and then she arrived at this thing where she had to go in, go into, um, go into something completely extraordinary and in doing that, she finds out that she's these things and she has to, yeah, yeah. Okay, I can go with that. I can go with yours. All right. <laughs> One for me. <laughs> so, so actually, no, the, the, uh, what I love about all of the characters, whether they're secondary characters or primary characters in your books, is that whatever it is that makes them sort of an outcast or sort of different, the way you write it is it's actually a gift. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah. I, I just thought it was yeah. beautifully portrayed in there. Yeah. But, but look, you didn't consider seriously writing early on. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, they just say, oh, I just want to be a writer. That, that, was, that was not you. Um, you only really started considering writing until you couldn't do what you really wanted to do, which yeah. was play tennis and study bugs. Yes. <laughs> right? That's a very good way to put it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so it was while you were recovering mm-hmm. that 
fr- from some really bad surgery. Yeah. Uh, that you start thinking, I got stories running around in my head, but mm-hmm. it was that sort of forced stillness. Yeah. That yeah. brought that out. Yeah. The the sitting in a hospital bed paralyzed will do that to you. you well, we'll do it to some. <laughs> yeah, but it clearly did it to you. Yeah, it was. Um, it was it, actually. It was more. Uh, it was more immediate than that. It was like it, I had to save myself because in that moment where, you know, I, I had been this, this great athlete and that was, it was not only my identity, it was my way of being. Like athletics and the, the feeling of motion, there was, I, I had a love for that that was so, so deep and profound. And you were so pretty suddenly, ferocious tennis player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was, uh... Yeah. <laughs> and then that gets taken away. And then that was taken away. Like, and not just taken away, it was taken away suddenly, and it was taken away fast, immediately. Like, one, one minute, you, go to, you, you, you walk into the hospital, walk, you're walk, you walk into the hospital. For, for some scoliosis. Yeah, for, for a surgery for scoliosis. And you, you're told that there's a 1% chance of paralysis, but you don't really believe that's going to happen. I mean, of course come not. on. And then nine hours later, wake up paralyzed, like literally half your body feels like it's just gone, you know? So, so when that happened, it was in the first few days where it was such a shock. It was such a shock to my system, to everything where, you know, I could have easily just, just lost my mind, just lost it, let it go and never returned and had good reason to lose my mind. Instead, I chose to save myself. And the way I saved myself was, was those stories. It was like, and I remember picking up the pen, and I remember this, the, the first story that was in my head was of a woman who could fly. And, you know, when you, can, when, you, when you can fly, you don't have to walk. And I just started writing it in the act of writing it, you know, just doing that. It, it wasn't just escaping. It, was, it wasn't like I was trying to escape myself. It was like going in. You and were it was engaging create, it. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, once I did that, that it saved me. So it wasn't just, um, okay, I can't do this, so let me do this. It was, it was something far more profound. But going into that kind of... Uh magic uh, or fantasy or whatever genre you want to call it. Um, Once you start doing that and start looking around and saying, so who else is doing this who kind of looks like me? Uh, How'd that work out? Um, You know, I, I don't think I looked around and asked that. It was when I found it that I realized it wasn't there. Oh, nice. So this is the bookstore <laughs> yeah, when you the, see... Yeah, Octavia okay, t- Butler. Yeah, tell yeah. us about seeing that book cover. Yeah, so, so I started writing these strange stories, and I wasn't seeing anything even remotely like what I was writing. And, um, and I just kept on, because that's, you know... Um, that's what you do. You just keep on. And I loved writing and that wasn't going to, that wasn't going to stop me. But I was at the, um, the Clarion Writers Workshop and it was at Michigan State University, which was at the time my alma mater. That's where I did my master's, my first master's degree. And I was there for this six week workshop. It's in science fiction and fantasy. That workshop was phenomenal for me because it was the first time where I accepted what I was doing. 
like where I really accepted that I was writing this speculative fiction and it was okay because up till then I had only had creative writing classes where all my professors were telling me that writing science fiction and fantasy was bad and that would continue afterwards but you know at but this point bad by just like, like it was bad writing you weren't like if you wanted to be a real writer you weren't writing that kind of stuff was not real literature and i was told that point blank wow. by professors i respected and that i learned from even after they told me that and so it was at the, so i was already having this mind blowing experience at the clarion writers workshop and one day they took us to the bookstore and i was going through the science fiction and fantasy section and i stopped because there was a book in that section that was like something I had never seen before. It was because there was a black woman on the cover and it was in the science fiction and fantasy section. I'd never seen that before. And I bought it because of that. No other reason. And it turned out to be Octavia Butler's Wild Seed. And you, so you had I, never heard of her never before. Never heard of her before. You saw a black woman yes. on the cover of a book yes. that said, that, uh, that's for me. Yes, exactly. That's why book covers are very important. No, yeah, no kidding. No kidding. <laughs> They're but really important. Yeah, so, so she, she kind of turns the lights on yeah. for you, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so Octavia Butler is one of the finest science fiction writers in general, but she's also um, the first high-profile uh, African-American science fiction writer. And I just happened to have picked up her book. And Wild Seed is, starts off in Nigeria, pre-colonial Nigeria. The main character is Ibo. Her name's Ibo. It's Anyawu. I knew exactly what her name meant. And so I opened this book and I started reading. And this woman is a shapeshifter who has been alive for over 300 years. And um, she ends up meeting another African immortal from Egypt. And so it starts this is how the book starts. And then we follow them all the way through um, the, the um, uh, white man, <laughs> slavery happening, and um, her going across the, through the middle passage to the United States. So for the first time you're seeing, so you're seeing that whole thing through the eyes of a character that's lived the whole thing. And it was just extraordinary. And I read this thing and I was like, oh my God. And she writes in this clear very engaging. You read the first paragraph of Wild Seed, you will not put that book down. You have to finish it. And that's how she writes. And so I read that and my mind blew because this was a speculative fiction narrative where some of the, what, what would be like considered magical elements like uh, shape-shifting are explained in a scientific way. You know, and, and she heals people in a scientific way. She can go into her own body and heal her own cells so she can heal cancer. It's just an amazing, amazing book. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is the first time I'm actually seeing this kind of narrative with these kinds of characters. And it just blew my mind. And, and it just it was like this validation that I that I didn't know I needed until I found it. You, you know, what thought crossed my mind while you were describing all this is this is what you're doing. This is what you're doing for other people who are saying, what about this kind mm. of writing? And that's got to be kind of a kick yeah. to think you're having that same kind of impact on a lot of people who are reading your stuff. Yeah, that's, it's a powerful thing, possibly one of the most powerful things of, of, of being a creative because you're like, you're, you're adding to, you're becoming part of the fabric. And right. that's like, that's an amazing feeling. So I, I had several oh my moments when I'm reading <laughs> when I was reading your stuff, but here is the biggest one when I was reading a scene in your book Shadow Speaker. Hmm. 
there is a storm raging and, uh, and it finally communicates why it is raging so much. Do you remember why? Yeah, I wrote that book a while ago. No, 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 no. it's yes, not a trick question, yeah. but, but, but I, th- I just thought yeah. it would be more interesting coming from you than from yes. me. I can tell you what it yes. was raging about, but do you, do you know, do you remember why? That was the character of, that was the Ajij, and um, he had, well, I'm giving aspects of it away, but uh, it's been a while since I talked. Yes, go ahead. (laughs) You can do it without giving things away. I I think I can do it without being a spoiler. So this is a storm that is raging because it says it doesn't remember its own story. That was my big oh my moment for this reason, that I just thought, isn't that the source of lots of Mm. rage in general that we just don't remember who we are, yeah. what our story is, where we came from, yeah. why, we're, why we're here. Yeah. I mean, th- I don't know if it struck you when you wrote that in as powerful a way as it hit me when I read it, but that was the, mm-hmm. you just put your finger on something really profound mm-hmm. about the rage uh, that, that people, that societies, that nations can, uh, uh, can spin off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did you know you were that deep in there? Yeah, because I, I remember with that character now, and the reason why it's hard for me to talk about that character is because I wrote more about that character. I'm trying to be vague, but like I wrote like a whole thing because that, that whole theme of rage and not knowing... Um, not knowing your past and needing yeah. to get at that and, and the, the result being destruction was, yeah, that was, that was intentional. Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. I just yeah. thought that was really strong. And so I just, I just kind of set the book down, just thought about that for a while. And then here, so here was my counter thought to it. I'd love to hear your, uh, your sense of it. Sometimes do you think we rage because we do remember our stories? I mean, yeah, that would make sense. I mean, if there are aspects of, because narratives have that effect. Even our own stories have that effect, always. So, yeah, I, I could definitely, you could definitely make that argument. Either way, of the, the forgetting and, or not knowing causes intense anger. Like, that, that is a normal response. But also knowing and understanding and, make, and that making you have to look inward and question aspects of yourself, which could be um, disturbing. And sometimes when we, when we are disturbed and we have no other way to uh, respond, it's with rage. So, yeah, definitely. Wow. Well, it was, it was a really, really powerful moment uh, for me. So there were some other things that I thought were interesting in several of your books where so many times there's a call back to ancient wisdom. Mm-hmm. And this is what I talked about at the very beginning about you're connecting the mm-hmm. past. Mm-hmm. But there's ancient wisdom in your plots. But here's what I loved is that that wisdom resides in books. So you're, you're really celebrating reading in all of these stories mm-hmm. because you're saying the, the wisdom's already there. And it, uh, if I were a librarian reading your books, I'd <laughs> <Yes>. go, yeah, <laughs> you're telling people to go to the library. Yes. And in, in the, the Akata series, I mean, the library is the most important, most powerful, play, the librarians are the most important and powerful people. I mean, it's knowledge. Libraries are powerful. I think people uh, 
forget that or take that for granted and think that it's the internet and no and, and even like for me being a um professor and but also a student i mean i have like i keep saying bachelor's two masters a phd mm-hmm. that's a lot of school and that's why i keep saying it um it's it's I understand profoundly the power of libraries like because I, I've been around them for so long and I've seen so many different types and I've explored them just for fun, you know, and, and the things that you can find in libraries are indeed magical and powerful. Like, and I, I think that a lot of, um, and I always tell this to when I'm speaking to, to um, students that especially in in universities and colleges, not to take that for granted because you won't always have access to that university library. There's some there's so much knowledge in there and there's so much power and there's so much access to the past, present and future in those libraries. And yeah. and so a lot of times my my obsession and my my love of that comes through in my work. It's it's just yeah, it's, it was going to happen. It's a, yeah, it's a theme in there. So the flip side of that is you've got this great scene in Zara the Windseeker mm. where the main character encounters a gorilla who tells her to turn off her electronic <laughs> compass. And this is what he says. The gor- gorilla says to her, you should learn to use what you have in your mind. It's much more reliable and far less irritating. <laughs> Ma- maybe a reference to cell phones? I don't know. What are you thinking? It might be, or it was just me imagining what a gorilla would say to a human being. Yeah, who was talking to a compass. Yeah, yeah. All right, all right. Fair, fair enough. So, so you're, the female characters in your books, they are a violent bunch. Hmm. They, are, they, they like to fight. Yes. <laughs> they like violence. <laughs> They're drawn to chaos. <laughs> Why can't your characters just get along? Oh. <laughs> um, <sighs> um, I have to admit, I think a lot of that comes from me. Really? A, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, there's a reason why I was an athlete. So there's yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, um, there's, um, it's not that I like violence. It's not Your that. Your characters do. My characters do, but they're, they are, uh, a lot of times they are um, exhibiting things that either I'm thinking about or I wish I could do. Sure. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but yeah, and um, I don't quite know I haven't figured out exactly why or where, but there is definitely a part of me. I mean, I'm wearing a Godzilla t-shirt. <laughs> I love Godzilla. Yeah, yeah. Godzilla. A lot of people wear Gandhi, but <laughs> yeah, no, not but you. The, no, this not one you. I mean. <laughs> we're, we're, we're going Godzilla. Godzilla comes out of the water and just destroys everything. Yeah, how cool you is know? that? Just destroy. And sometimes there's like no reason. Um, I like that. <laughs> I like that. I like kaiju. I like, uh, it was part of why I was also attracted to um, apocalyptic fiction. Just seeing everything destroyed is something <laughs> that sounds really bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it is something that, that, is, that is very, very prevalent. I think um, there is rage in me. There is that angry black woman in me. And uh, you can call it a stereotype or whatever, but there is a lot to be enraged about, a lot. And, and I put a lot of that in my fiction. I channel a lot of that into, into my stories. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so <laughs> all right, let's, let's talk about who fears death for a minute. Um, you describe in that book in some really, really uh, profound ways of what it means uh, to be trapped, basically, just by virtue of being a female. Hmm. And um, so, and I mean, there's this description of female circumcision in there. And when I got to that, I looked at, we're only at page 40. Yeah, it comes and fast. Yeah, that does, it does get there fast. But, but then there's a quote from a male character to one of the female characters that says, you're a failure. You were supposed to be a boy. You're in some big stuff there. Mm. Um, so our, I, I just found it remarkable for you to be able to put just even in the first few chapters of that this is the trap so many people are in. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's uh, Who Fears Death, both Who Fears Death and The Book of Phoenix. Those were two books that I wrote when I was in dark places for two for completely different reasons. Who Fears Death was inspired by the passing of my father and the way that it happened with him was was disturbing it was he was a a cardiovascular surgeon he was one of the chiefs of surgery in um in chicago and he passed from congestive heart failure and Parkinson's. So Parkinson's makes your hands shake. So what what is one of the prized possessions or the prized things of a surgeon a when they're doing hand. open heart surgery yeah. is yeah. steady hands. Right. So I watched this. It, it was five years. And so when he passed, I was angry as all hell. I was just yeah. angry. And so when I wrote Who Fears Death, um, you know, it was inspired by just what how i felt during his wake keeping like the very first the very first scene in who fears death was drawing off of something that i felt and dealt with and um and when i wrote it i didn't know where i had no idea where it was going i had no idea i just started writing this story this character i didn't know who she was and um as i wrote it all this other these other narratives kind of spun into the hurricane that was that was the story, and uh, those narratives tended to be dominated by by narratives of women and women strong women strong African women dealing with patriarchy and those are those are narratives that i 've been hearing all my life you know and i didn't I, I never like thought, okay, this is a story of a strong African woman dealing with patriarchy. It wasn't like that. It was, it was very much, I was just gathering these stories. I would listen to um, my female relatives um, and my mother and my aunts and, 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 and cousins, and I, I would listen and I would watch. And, you know, these narratives were just there. And so when I sat down to write Who Fears Death, all of those came forth, all of those. And, and I didn't hold back anything when I wrote that. I wasn't, I was like, I'm just writing this thing. I'm not going to worry about how this sounds. I'm going to revel in the pain. I'm going to write truth. And so that was, that was what, that was where all of that came from. It was all very much not planned, but it was, it was, it was drawing off of things that were around me. Wasn't it also informed a little by uh, what was happening in the Sudan yes, at the yeah. time? And, and as I was writing it, I came across um, a narrative of a woman in the Sudan who was, she was a uh, black, um, black Christian woman 
who was talking about how the Janjaweed, who that means men on horses, had attacked the women in her, her and then the women in her village. And she told, she spoke about it. And one of the things I always look for in these narratives, I always look for the women's voices, mm-hmm. like the specific women's voices, not someone telling what she said, but like her speaking. And this was, uh, this was a really well, I, at one point it was, it was in the Washington Post, I think. And at one point I actually contacted the journalist and to, to thank her because I'm like, it's, it's rare that we get their actual voices. And I know why some of them don't want to speak, but this was clear. And she was talking about what happened and it was, it was brutal and disturbing and um, in detailed. And I remember taking that story and putting it right into Who Fears Death. And that's why that particular scene reads like that, because that scene is not just fiction at all. <laughs> no, and it was clearly rape being used as a weapon. Yes, yes. For- and the, actually, the, the news story that I was reading was ref- called it that. It, it was weaponized rape. And, and when I read that, I was like, it blew my mind because I'm like, this is genetic warfare that they're, that they're enacting. And that whether they're conscious of it or not, they are trying to basically plant their own genetics in these women because these were, these were Arab men who were doing this to black African women. And in that culture, if a woman has a child, the child is the, the man's. So by doing that, they're breaking the bloodline. That's, that's really deep. Like, that is some serious evil. And so I, I remember being absolutely shocked by that. And I knew it had to go in the book. Yeah. Well, it's, it's brutal to read, but it's, it's a powerful story. My gosh. On Who Fears Death, I don't know if you did this with your other books, but I'm, I'm really intrigued with how, with how you revised that. Because that was like twice as long. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. two volumes. Yeah. And... Uh, is it true that you took the pages out of order? Yeah. And, yeah. and read those pages just in isolation to see what stayed and, and what went? How in the world do you revise <laughs> that way? That That's was the tough. most unusual revision yeah, process. Yeah, it was tough. Um, Who Fears Death took me six years to write. And when I first finished it, finished the whole, the whole thing. It was two books. It was a book one and a book two. And, um, it was 700 pages. And, um, I took that to my agent and he read it and he was like, this is great. It's going to win awards, but it's, you know, what do we call this? A duology? It's who, you know, and, and this is African science fiction. It is something that's very rare. So he's like, okay, you need to make this into one book without changing any of the plot elements. <laughs> I was like, what? And, and my, my agent also writes books on, um, on writing. And so he taught me this technique where I would, was to go through the whole thing, the whole narrative, and take all the weak phrases and make them into strong words. So very big would become huge, you know, stuff like that. And so what I did was I printed the whole thing out, it was, uh, this is You printed hard. out 700 pages. I know. I, just, I had to go to, you know. You killed a few trees. Back then we had Kinko's, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> had right. to go there and do that. And um, yeah, it killed trees. <sighs> but it was for a good reason. Yeah, yeah. They gave their life <laughs> willingly. I yes. Think. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Um, yeah, so I, I, I printed it out and then, then um, mixed up all the pages. 
and then threw it on the floor, mixed them up some more, and then went through each of those pages out of context, one by one, and went through all the words, all the words, and then did that, and also took out all the inner thoughts that did not need to be there. Because I realized that inner thoughts were mainly, 90% of inner thoughts were mainly redundant. So I took all that out. Because the action would reveal yes, what exactly, they were thinking anyway. Exactly, exactly. And so that took me two years to do that. And to this day, I can still find things in, like if someone needs to find like one word that's mentioned once in Who Fears Death, I can find it very quickly because, because of that. Like, I've me- like the whole thing is just <laughs> in my head. And so... Um, and so by the time, after those two years, I, had, I got it down to 300, 389 pages. And that was, that was the book. So now when, when you read it, it reads very fast and mm-hmm. smooth and there's no fat on it at all because of that process. But like what I learned from that process was also that technique that I used. And I applied that to everything I've written from, this, from that point on. Wow. Everything. Yeah. But the other, the other point I think is useful for, for writers uh, listening to this is go ahead and write long. Yeah. In, in your early draft, mm-hmm. write long because then you can always... You can always take stuff out. Yes, and it, you, it's easier to work with something than nothing. That's what I always say. It's, it's, uh, the editing process doesn't have to... It, it's, for me, the editing process is a lot longer than the initial, what I call the genesis phase, which is when you throw it down on the page first. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about the Akata books for a second. Mm-hmm. I'm curious by your word choices in those titles. <laughs> you knew when you titled it Akata Witch... You knew you were stepping in it. Yes. <laughs> with those words. Why would you do that? You, I, the Nigerian press won't yes. publish those words. In fact, I think we have the one that the Nigerian press, yeah. the, this, this one here. Yeah. Um, why would you use words like akata and witch knowing how inflammatory they are? Well... There is, as we've kind of established, there is a part of me that is chaos. <laughs> there Granted. is pa- a part of me that likes to, it's not that I like to make trouble, but I like to start conversations. I like to stir it up and then run away. Yeah, but, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some would call that cowardly. But, 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 but this, the Nigerian press wouldn't even go there. Yeah, they wouldn't. Um, the word akata is... Uh, is a, a derogatory term for African Americans and those who, for, who are those people like me who are who are born outside of Nigeria, and um, it is a word. And, and mind you, there's a whole conversation around this. Some Nigerians will say that, oh, it's not a negative word. It's not negative at all. It's just a word. No, anyone who's been called a kata knows it's not a nice word. We know. Um, but there's a whole conversation. If you want to know the conversation, you just Google it. I, I, a good conversation to find is um, look up Akata and then put Naira land. Naira is a Nigerian currency. Um, Naira land and you'll find the whole, a really interesting conversation about the word. But, but the word is inflammatory. It's purposely inflammatory. It is part of the book. Um, the main character is called that and has to deal with that. Um, so there's that, so that, that's one part of it. And then there's the word witch, which is also uh, very problematic in Nigeria because the word witch has a lot of power over there and a lot of negative power, a lot of um, 
fear is around around that word so so yeah nigeria it, they had to change they had to change the title because with the with the title akata which um at the time at least people would not buy people wouldn't buy a book called akata which for their for their kids to read because it's filled with you know it's it's got the you've got witchcraft implied and then you've got the word akata in there now it, things have changed a lot because i think um Nigerian readers have gotten used to me. They know that I write that juju stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and they're they're kind of used to it. They yeah. they know what I'm about. Yeah. But, but oh, it's her. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. She's she's at it again. Okay. Yeah. Let's read it anyway. Yeah. Okay. So so let's talk about Binti for 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 a minute. My understanding is that the inspiration for Binti, where she sneaks out of the house. At night, doesn't tell her parents, she sneaks out of the house so that she can go to college on a different planet. Yes, right? of aliens. Right, right. <laughs> you snuck out of your own house, basically, to take a teaching job in Buffalo, New York. Are you saying <laughs> Buffalo is like going to another planet? <laughs> <laughs> One of the faculty members at Buffalo asked me that exact question. They're like, we're not the aliens, are we? Uh, I mean, not so much, but to, but in the context of coming from a very insular um, Nigerian-American family in Chicago where none of us leaves and and this idea of leaving is like breaking up the family and yeah buffalo was you know i mean in in some ways it is like another planet in the winter i will say that yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. didn't your daughter give you the idea for this book she gave me the um the the plot there was a point where oh, i don't want to give too much away that's but right. like right. there was a, a major plot point that where i was stuck and my daughter's she's 15 and she's she's always around me and that's that's that, that whole thing of um where writers go have to go hide in the log cabin to go write and leave their family and everything that doesn't work for me i you know i i write with my daughter there from when she was a baby to when she was older to now and um so I'd I'd be writing and I I you know I I've got to a point in the story where I was a little bit stuck you know where I'm like okay I don't know what happens next and I turned to my daughter and was like she always knows the summaries of all of my stories as I'm as I'm writing them because I I tell her mm-hmm. and she's always interested and so I'm like oh, I'm stuck in this part what what should happen next and she gave me a major plot point she's oh, like nice. yeah and and it worked. <laughs> She's so awesome. here's 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 another thing about Binti though, that that kind of stuck made me think about sort of the present age with a lot of people who go to way, who go away to college. Mm-hmm. She comes back different, mm-hmm. and her family members are wondering about that school. What did they do to you? <laughs> right? She didn't have. And here was the big thing: she didn't have the same enemies that her parents had mm-hmm. when she came back from college. It's like she left home a Republican and came back a Democrat. <laughs> so that's a very so, interesting way to put it. Well, okay, but, but 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 basically, you described her growing up and making her own decisions, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That doesn't strike me as sci-fi or fantasy. That's that's like that's right now. Yeah, I mean, every I don't know, like uh, science fiction doesn't have to be completely foreign. <laughs> it's yeah. it's. Uh, it is I, I, my favorite type of science fiction is the one that's um, that's woven in with with 
not just the now, but with um, with specific places now. You know, um, I think that like, and it doesn't always have to be concerned, overly concerned with the technology. Sometimes it can just dwell in the vicinity of the technology. Sometimes it can just be in the future, and it could just be um, a narrative that happens then. Mm-hmm. And and I think that those those important aspects in the story. Um, make it make for a different type of science fiction but but it still deals with these fundamental yeah. human yeah. uh dimensions and um and motivations and experiences yeah. that's, that's what i loved about your uh about your work so we have uh just a few minutes left so let me ask you a little more specifically on uh, about the craft of writing you're you're suspicious of novels that come too quickly um, I think they happen for me, definitely. <laughs> Why? For me, because I think that that it should be like a wine. I think time is required. It's not something that's optional. I think it needs to simmer and mature and and grow and evolve. Like you, you can't rush it. I mean, if something does come fully formed and it comes quickly, fine. I, I'm willing to accept that, but I would definitely be suspicious. You know, hmm. I, I think that time is a factor in a good story. You, you have also said that people should write unapologetically. Yes. Which is clearly how you have approached uh, <laughs> y- y- your craft. But, but for people who aren't you, what does that mean? It means turning off those voices that say um, that what you're, that the story you're writing isn't good enough or interesting enough or uh, can't be understood by everybody. Those voices that are, that, that kind of stop things at the door. That's, that's what I mean. Um, And also like, yeah, those voices can be outside and inside because you, you know, you could have um, people on the outside saying things and, and then you can also have those inner voices as well. I think that a lot of a lot of writers are looking for instant instant validation. They're looking for it very quickly when they need to just shut up and write. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. That's, yeah, I can be a little harsh. <laughs> I've, I've, <laughs> That's I've heard, what it is. I've it's... heard you be harsher. <laughs> so um, there is a uh, there's it, a lot of the things that I've brought up have been about rage and evil and 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 stuff. But there's this beautiful scene in Akata Warrior, where the friends reach out their knives Mm. and touch the points of their knives to one another. And she can suddenly, the Sunny character can suddenly see them and herself completely and feel love. Are you drawing from something where you just felt completely loved? Um, I wouldn't say drawing specifically from, from something but that was an important moment for me because she she was seeing she she had her own insecurities and she was seeing herself through the eyes of someone who really admired her and uh, really saw her as a, a a necessary friend and who loves her you know and and that's really important that's important for for everyone i think everyone should feel that moment but like for this character to have that 
it's almost like she was being fortified for what was to come. Like whatever comes at her, she had now this, this shield against anything, any negative thing to come at her because she, she was able to see herself through the eyes of someone who loves her. That's a powerful thing. She had this shield of community, it sounded yeah, like. Not, yeah. not, not only just what she realized about herself, but she had this, this sense of, of, yeah, being loved by others. I, mm-hmm. t- I just thought it was a beautiful, beautiful moment. It wasn't all just fighting. Yeah. Although Even I would like was. to bring up yeah. one thing about <laughs> fighting. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm back to who fears death here regarding the strong women character. Here's, here's, this, here's this great quote. Like those disgusting men outside the tavern. Oh God. They hadn't heard me until they feared me. Are you speaking? I mean, that just sounds like something in the present culture to me. Yeah, there's a lot of that in New Fear's Death. Um, um, Yeah, issues of, of patriarchy in the Nigerian community is a... I, I listen and um, sometimes participate and sometimes fight, uh, but like it's strong and there are things that you'll just hear and 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 but not, it's not just things that are said. It's thing it, those things that are unsaid, the societal pressure, um, the things where you won't be heard unless you're unless you do something profound be it something violent or something that's greatly admired it's often something violent and 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 women who want to be heard having to resort to the extreme to be heard you know it's it's and and, and a lot of times in resorting to the extreme hurting themselves as well so it's that's something that's one of those lines and there are several lines like that in who fears death where I, I, I'll come at things from the side and then every so often just, just go right for it. Almost like, um, almost like a snake. We were talking about rattlesnakes earlier. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, they'll go, go to the side, but then they'll, they'll strike and then move back. And who fears death? I do that. Um, I do that a lot. It's, it's something, it just felt like the, the right way to, to write that book. There are some things where I had to just, just, uh, just strike. And that was, that was definitely one of those lines. There are several in there. But I wasn't even looking at it from a Nigerian context. Mm-hmm. I was looking at it as a present context in the United States mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where I thought you were saying if, if women are going to be heard in this culture, we have to be afraid. People like yeah. me have to be afraid of you. Yeah, I mean, there, there has to be that element. And, it's, it's, it may, like, th- and this is why I talk about things being specific, but also being universal. Yes. So this is like, it's, it's, where I'm talking about um, patriarchy in Nigeria, that can be applied worldwide, easily, easily. And, and I do think that, I, I, I do think that. I think that there has to be that element in there. Um, it sounds dark, but... It is what it is. Sounds realistic, too. Yeah, yeah. So there are a lot of people in our audience and who will be watching this who are writers, mm-hmm. who are hoping to be writers, whatever. Do you have a, uh, a word of advice for them? My advice is always to 
don't talk about writing. <laughs> don't don't uh, sit there and 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 dream about it. To actually do it, to sit down and and if you wanna if you wanna tell that story, tell that story, and don't be afraid of telling your story. And and that that voice that's that and I this is something I often hear um, from new writers of who's gonna be interested in what I in the story that I have to tell. Just just shut that off and go and write. And then also, I don't believe in writer's block. I don't believe writer's block exists. I believe that there, there are natural pauses in writing, and it's okay to take that pause if it comes. Um, and, uh, and you don't have to write every day. That whole, I know Stephen King said it, and I think Stephen King is a great writer. He's one of my favorite writers. But um, I don't believe that you do have to write every day. I think you just have to want to write and that you have to do it. You know, so if there's a day where um, where you can't write, don't feel guilty because a lot of times that need to that that feeling of okay, I have to write every day is what will cause you not to do it because it's a lot of you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself. For me, I write every day, but I don't feel like I have to write every day. So the the bit about writer's block, mm-hmm. you I think what you think writer's block really is is that you're working on the wrong thing yeah there's always a reason there's always a reason like if you're if if something is just isn't coming maybe you just need to go outside and chase some grasshoppers i don't know go do something else or <laughs> that's always my really solution. that's that's what does it for you <laughs> that's, that's what does it for me <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah it doesn't take much but like there are all there are all sorts of reasons that you need to locate what the reason is as opposed to saying oh i have this condition called writer's block and that's going to be my excuse for not for not writing no it's 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 typically there's typically something that's going on and and just figure that out and don't panic you know, don't like that pressure. I think that pressure is one of the things that that stops a lot of writers at the door. Also, trying to um, when you've never written a story and you think, "Oh, I have this book in me," and you just sit down and start trying to write a whole novel. You might want to start with something shorter first, because <laughs> novels are are a whole beast in themselves. Like writing something book length is a beast. It's a beast, and it takes. Um, it takes something that you need to have before you you start doing it. So my suggestion, if you want to write something, start with something short. If you're stuck with the story, just write a scene in that story, the scene that is most interesting to you, um, and then see what happens. Then something else might pop up. Yeah, there are all sorts of all sorts of ways, all sorts of things to do. Because didn't you start by writing about an outhouse? Yes, exactly. There you go. <laughs> Start there. Start about everybody has an outhouse oh, experience they could write about. <laughs> that's an interesting, interesting way to put it. But yeah, that is true. I started writing. My first story was about an outhouse. That's great. Yeah. Wow. What an inspiring <laughs> way to finish. So would you thank Nettie Okorafor for being with us tonight? Thank you. Oh. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.